thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to today's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and I'm delighted to have you with me. I think today's going to be a very important day because I'm going to share some things with you that, to be honest, just began to come together for me in the last week, and it ties into how I ended last week's podcast. And what I said, um, you may not remember, but if you do, uh, it's a very odd comment for a person like me who considers myself to be a biblical worldview thinker to have said it. So listen to this ending to last week's podcast, and we'll pick up from there. And next week, I think what I'm going to do is talk about why I've given up on a biblical worldview unless it's set in a proper cosmology, an understanding of how the world works. Otherwise, we'll apply the worldview badly, as we've been doing. The reason that I think a biblical worldview must be set within a cosmological worldview is that, at least with respect to me, it produced legalism, and it produced a legalistic way of going about politics. Now, that legalistic way, which will become apparent as we go on through today and perhaps in the next week or the week after, uh, did produce some political successes, just like you may see other Christian organizations have some political successes in our time. But they turned into either failures or, probably more accurately, um, they proved to be ineffective. And now I know why. It goes back to a verse on which I framed a whole series that began last March called Foundations. And let me repeat that passage of Scripture because I have a better understanding of it now than I did even then. And I'll admit to you, and it'll become apparent as we go on through today and maybe next week, that Christ was a stumbling block for me in regard to my thinking about politics. And I didn't even know it. <laughs> so the passage of Scripture that I'm thinking about is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's found in verse 11, which reads, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And I explained at the time, it's easy to think of that just strictly in terms of soteriology. Jesus is the foundation for civilization. But the passage of Scripture, as I went through that, that podcast series, is not limited to soteriology. It extends to cosmology and to eschatology. And what he says in here is that regardless of how you build on it, whether you're a a haymaker or a straw maker or a person who builds with gold and silver coins or whatever, he says, if you're not careful and you don't build correctly on that foundation, your work will be burned up and you'll suffer loss even if you are saved. And that's what I was saying. Because I approached my politics in a legalistic spirit that I didn't even realize was legalistic. And non-cosmological, 
some of the work that I did has been burned up. It's proved to be fruitless. It's been overruled by the Supreme Court, overruled by Congress, and doesn't do in my state what I had hoped it would do. So to lay a cosmological foundation, I want to begin today with looking at Abraham Kuyper's Lecture 4 as part of the Stone Lectures at Princeton Seminary in 1898. And it's important that we lay a right cosmological understanding for our worldview, which I took, to be honest, as how do we think about specific kinds of issues? How do we think about law generally as a, in, in American law and common law versus Marxist law versus positive law? Or how do we think of economics as um, capitalism or socialism or whatever else it might be, whatever other ism? And, and so we'd, we'd come to the right moral or ethical conclusion that, for example, um, capitalism is better than fascism and socialism and communism, right? But you have to put how you take on those issues and how you approach those issues in the political and legal sphere in a cosmological worldview, and that's what I lacked. Now, the interesting thing here is that Kuiper says in his lecture on science, and he's not talking of science here as the empirical sciences, as, as we tend to limit it today. Everything is a science. If you go to my commentary for this week, this Friday, you'll see how psychology was, was moved from philosophy and epistemology, how do we know things and how do we know that what we know is true and real, to empirical sciences. So everything's now empiricists. And here's what he says about the sciences broadly understood as knowledge. And you'll see where cosmology fits into that. He says, cosmological life regained its worth not at the expense of eternal things, but by virtue of its capacity as God's handiwork and as a revelation of God's attributes. And, and what he's saying is, in, in part of the Middle Ages, we became so enamored with the eternal, we lost the sense of the current cosmos and God's work in the current cosmos, you see. And it all became spiritual, ethereal, and dualistic in nature. Now, he goes on and says this, Calvinism alone, by means of its dominating principle, the sovereignty of God over all of creation constantly urges us to go back from the cross to creation. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? We think of the going from the cross to eternity and to heaven, but Kuiper is saying that it should bring us back to creation. In other words, understanding the nature of the cosmos in which we live. And if we don't understand that, and we don't understand what God's doing in that cosmos, we won't know how to do law or politics correctly, and we won't know where we're going, which is why Kuiper said in his first lecture that Protestantism, among all the different worldviews, 
uh, paganism, modernism, uh, Catholicism, Islam, says, we don't know where we're going. We're just wandering around aimlessly and not making any progress. And it's hard to make progress when you're lost in the cosmos. Imagine being lost in a new city, driving around and not knowing where you're going. But well, you're lost in the cosmos. You're lost, lost, right? I mean, Francis Schaeffer talks some about that. So let's now look at what Kuiper says. That's going to next lead to some things that uh, Puritan theologian, Westminster divine advisor to Oliver Cromwell, John Owen said. You can find uh, this lectures on Calvinism from Kuiper at a website called monergism.com. Just type in Kuiper, lectures on Calvinism, and you'll find it. There's a hyperlink to lecture number four. The book we'll be using uh, from John Owen is called at monergism.com, The Glory of Christ. You might find it on Amazon as Meditations and Discourses on the Glory of Christ. But if you'll go there, you'll find this other work that I'll be drawing from either later today or in next week's podcast. So let's begin with Kuiper. Kuiper points out that the world, even as it was in 1898, was drawing a sharp boundary between the natural and the supernatural, between the phenomenal world and the nominal world in a form of agnosticism, not denying there's a supernatural, not denying there's, uh, uh, you know, something else out there, but, but just in a Kantian fashion saying we really can't know anything about it. And we don't know that the tools we use in empirical sciences work in this spiritual realm. So he refers to this as an agnosticism that drew a curtain across the background and over the abysses of life. And we became satisfied to study the phenomenon of the several sciences. And that's exactly what's kind of happened. So I've talked about that in previous episodes. We have pro-family groups writing briefs on transgenderism that refer to the empirical sciences and what the studies show. They have given up the idea that there's a given nature and anything that we really know is true about human nature. Now they'll say they, they, they know that, and I'm sure they do know that, and I'm sure they profess that. But when it comes to operating in the world, they operate just like the agnostics who say we really can't know anything except the data around us, and we have to give meaning to the data because it doesn't have any given meaning. And Kuiper goes on then to say this. The question about the origin, interconnection, and destiny of everything that exists cannot be suppressed. Eventually, we have to come back to that. Now, the good news is we are getting so crazy in our world with the disconnection of everything, but yet knowing there has to be connection, that there are wonderful opportunities for Christians who will do it to begin to do what the Apostle Paul did on Mars Hill to say, wait a minute, you, you all have it wrong. It's in him we live and move and have our being. But he says, as a result, though, that we, we, we went away from this knowledge, we became agnostic, he says, the theory of evolution with full speed occupied the ground in all circles, inimical to the word of God, and especially among our naturalists. 
And and that's what's happened. That's what I was just describing. Everything now is an empirical science, the measurement of data and what affects data uh, and and how can we manipulate the data, which is why we now think that um, there's no real true given nature to man or woman or molecules infused with energy. And anatomy doesn't tell us anything true about who we are, so we can manipulate the data and the stuff to turn turn boys into girls and girls into boys, right? So he goes on and then says this, Cosmological science originated in the Greco-Roman world. In the Middle Ages, though, he says, the cosmos vanished behind the horizon to draw the attention to all the distant sites of life. And it was Calvinism which, without losing sight of the spiritual, led to a rehabilitation of the cosmic sciences. Now, to be honest, we've repeated this same mistake. We focus on heaven, getting out of here, escaping earth, escaping history. We just want to be pious so that we can leave here. That's Gnosticism. And that kind of heresy is rampant in our churches. Now, Kuiper says, look, I'm, I'm not elevating that Greco-Roman world of, of sciences in importance above the spiritual. And he says this about that. Let it be quite understood that I do not in any way overrate the classical world to the detraction of the heavenly luster which sparkled through the haze of the Middle Ages. But notwithstanding all this, I assert and maintain that Aristotle knew more of the cosmos than all the church fathers taken together, that under the dominion of Islam, better cosmic science flourished than in the cathedral and monastic schools of Europe, that the recovery of the writings of Aristotle was the first incentive to renewed, though rather deficient, study of the cosmos. And that by virtue of Calvinism's dominating principle, not soteriological, but cosmological, the sovereignty of God over all things, constantly urges us to go back from the cross to creation. Isn't that interesting? We think of the cross to heaven, to eternity. And he says, no, no, the cross should drive us back to creation. Now, why would that be? Why would that seem so backwards to us? And, or, or at least to me, intuitively, when I read it, it's because creation tells us the nature of the cosmos. What happened to the cosmos? And it helps us begin to understand what God is going to do about the cosmos. See, that's the cosmology, the cosmological worldview that I believe is lacking. It was certainly lacking with me. Now, here's what he begins to talk about with respect to driving us back to creation and actually before creation. He speaks to the Calvinistic belief that, quote, there is one supreme will in God, the cause of all existing things, subjecting them to fixed ordinances and directing them towards a pre-established plan. Calvinists have never thought that the idea of the cosmos lay in God's foreordination as an aggregate of loosely conjoined decrees, but they have maintained that the whole formed one organic program of the entire creation 
and the entire history. In other words, there is a a unity of thinking in God's head about the nature of the cosmos. It's not, well, here's a little plan over here for art. Here's a little plan over here for law and a little plan for politics. And here's 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 my will for 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 education. And here's my will for music. Um, No, all of those things fit in one unifying, organizing cosmological will. That's what he's saying. He said, so Calvin and the Calvinists, the true Calvinists, thought everything formed together into one high order, which exists according to God's command and wherein God's counsel will be accomplished in the consummation of his eternal, all-embracing plan. So a cosmological worldview has to understand that eternal all-embracing plan, or we wind up with a biblical worldview that is a bunch of bits and pieces. Now, Francis Schaeffer did talk about the fact that we see the world in bits and pieces, but even if we see them as a harmonious whole, that they all fit together in, in, in the way that Schaeffer talked about it, the question is still, where is it going? Where is it headed? And if we don't know that, we won't make progress because we won't know where we're going. And that's what Kuiper was saying in 1898. And we didn't listen then. We may not be listening now. We're not repenting now. So we may continue to wander aimlessly. But at some point, God will will discipline us sufficiently through the evils of the day that we'll repent and say, okay, God, not my will, but thine be done. Oh, I think that's in a prayer somewhere. But anyway. Now, let's move for a moment to John Owen's book on the glory of Christ that you can find, again, at monergism.com. I'm going to run through this rather quickly, and I can tell I'm going to need to pick up next week with some Bible verses um, that help further flesh this out and then apply them to politics. But hang with me here for just a few more moments. John Owen has a chapter in his book called The Glory of Christ in the Recapitulation of All Things. Now, he begins with saying, here's the beginning of the Bible. And this is what he says about in the beginning. In the state of creation, it says, all things were made and depended immediately on God himself without the interposition of any other head of influence or rule. In other words, God ruled directly. They had the continuance of their being and its preservation from the immediate acting of these properties of the divine nature whereby they were made. And their dependence on God was by virtue of that law, which was implanted on the principles and powers of their many natures by God himself. So go to the ant. Proverbs tells us, look, he has a nature. He understands where he fits. He knows how to get along in life. Ants don't have mental illnesses like we do. And I know some people would laugh and say, well, we don't know that they have any minds and emotions at all. But but it's Proverbs that says, study the ant. He understands his place in the cosmos, you see. And, and so all those things were ruled directly 
without intermediation by God according to the principles of the law that was written on their heart or written into their their bodies like the ant, okay? Then he continues. He, referring to God, provided himself of two distinct rational families that should depend on him according to a law of moral obedience and thereby give glory to him. So if we carried out the law that was implanted in us, we would be giving glory to God. And he created two distinct habitations for them, cognate unto their nature and use, heaven above and the earth beneath. The earth he appointed for the habitation of man, which was every way suited unto the constitution of his nature, the preservation of his being, and the end of his creation in giving glory to God. We, we, were, we were made to give glory to God, and everything around us was suited to us being able to do that. He continues, Heaven he prepared for the habitation of the angels, which was suited under the constitution of their nature, the preservation of their being, and of the end of their creation in giving glory to God. You see the theme here. Everything is for the glory of God, which the Apostle Paul repeats in 1 Corinthians. So then he says this, which I think is good. Wherefore, as man had power and dominion over all things here below, and was to use them all unto the glory of God, it was by this means that God received glory from them also, though in themselves brute and inanimate. So when we use rocks to make concrete, he's saying there's a sense in which the rocks are giving glory to God because they're fulfilling a purpose for which they are created and could be used. And as we pull these things out of creation and use them, they're giving glory to God. See, I can take sand and make silicone. I can make glass. And that sand, by man exercising dominion over it, is giving glory to God, not in just making the glass or, or, or the silicone. But the, silly, but the sand is being a part of it, is bringing glory to God. I admit, I didn't really think of that. But you see, everything, everything should be caught up in our love for God and in the glorification of God. It's, it's properly ordered loves and purposes. He continues, each of these families had their own immediate distinct dependence on God. He was the immediate head of them. There was no other common head interposed between God and them. In other words, Jesus. There wasn't a, a Jesus in that sense that was interposed between them prior to the fall. They were not a head one unto the other. In other words, the man wasn't the head of the angels. The angels weren't the head of the man. There were no communications unto them but what were immediate from God himself. And their union among themselves was in this alone, that all their obedience did meet and center in God. Now he continues. We're, we're beginning to understand the original cosmos here. That's the cosmos we got, we got to begin to understand. That's what's supposed to be. And then he adds, this beautiful order in itself, this union between the two families of God, which is in God, was disturbed, broken, and dissolved by the entrance of sin. He says this, hereby part of the family above, part of the angels, and the whole of the family below fell off 
from their dependence on God. And ceasing to center in him as their head, they fail into variance and enmity among themselves. Right? Certain angels were cast out. And, of course, we've fallen in enmity among ourselves. For the center of this union, in order being removed and lost, nothing but enmity and confusion remained among them. Hereon to show that its goodness was lost, God cursed the earth. Now, that's an interesting statement, right? It's not, not a punishment, but it is to point us to the fact that there should be a goodness here that we're not seeing. And God is, is saying, yes, yes, that's right. Look to me for that goodness. I'm the creator of it. I'm, I'm going to be the restorer of it. It was a grace that was given to us in that sense. And we're going to talk more about that when we get to some verses next week. I hope you'll join me next week. So, God cursed the earth and all that was in it, for it was put in subjection unto man who was now fallen from him. But, oh, and he, he didn't curse the heavens, which were in subjection unto the angels, because some of them only, or only some of them, left their habitation, and the habitation of the residue wasn't cursed for their sakes, but mankind was wholly gone off from God. So now what are we going to do? We're now into chapter 3 of Genesis. We previously looked at chapters 1 and 2. Now we get to 3. He says, Howbeit, though, he would not restore them unto their former estate, which was a direct dependence on God without any mediation between them. He would not restore them into their former state so as to again have two distinct families, each in an immediate dependence upon himself, though he left them in different distinct habitations. Right? We still have the heavens and the earth. But he was going to gather them both into one and that gathering would be under a new head in whom the one part should be preserved from sinning, the rest of the angels, and the other, mankind, delivered from the sin committed. There we see Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. In an administration suitable to time, he is going to pull all things in heaven and earth together under one head. Owen himself, though, continues in this work. This pulling together of one, these two uh, realms, these two distinct families, the angels and men, into one head, he, he refers to in um, Colossians chapter 120, to reconcile all things in himself, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Owen continues, all things were fallen into disorder and confusion by sin. They were fallen away from God into variance among themselves. God would not restore them into their first order in an immediate dependence on his divine perfections. He would no longer keep them in two distinct families, but he would, in his infinite wisdom and goodness, gather them up into one common head, which is Jesus Christ. Now you're beginning to see why Jesus Christ is the only foundation that can be laid for anything following the fall, whether it's art, education, law, politics, government, soteriology, you name it. But he would, in his infinite wisdom and goodness, gather them up into one common head on whom they should have their immediate dependence. So now our immediate dependence 
is on Jesus Christ, the God-man, the mediator between us, and be reconciled again among themselves. He then goes on, and this is where the concept of glory of Christ and in the recapitulation of things comes in. He says, This new head wherein God has gathered up all things in heaven and earth, one body, one family, on whom is all their dependence, in whom they all now consist, is Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate. This glory was reserved for him. None could be meet or prepared or suitable or sufficient for it or worthy of it. One of my favorite statements in any book I've read is where Michael Reeves, in his little short book, Delighting in the Trinity, is he says, the Trinity is the cockpit for all of our thinking. And that's why also we find that in Colossians chapter 2, verses 3, the apostle says, I want you to come to the full assurance of knowledge. How do you know what you know and know that what you know is true and real? objectively, as he said, well, you have to come to know the Father and the Son. You have to come to understand the Trinity because the whole creation is revealing the triune nature of God and the whole of creation was and now in its recreation revealing the glory of God in the face of Christ, which happens to be what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. That salvation is the God who commanded light to shine into darkness, shining the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ into our hearts. Now, that's where I'm going to stop today, and we're going to pick up next week looking at some passages in Romans and Galatians so that we'll understand. Um, how do we now live in this cosmos that no longer reflects the original creation, but is being recreated? And how do we think about what we do as recreated beings or beings that are being recreated? And I sure hope you'll join me next week because we're going to find out about one fundamental law that should govern everything we do in every sphere, including law and politics. And I hope you'll join me for that. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.